1: Hello David Yeah hi how are you How are you sir And welcome doing, all mate? to a chapter of my life With author David Now we do a, a weekly podcast Terry Curran and myself The Current View And we've been looking at your book It's in um, in the book corner We didn't know with your surname Is Tossel or to sell so just clear that up first for us please it's tussle okay thank you i was right tc so was wrong
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> how are you mate anyhow you okay
0: good, yeah yeah I'm, very good yeah I'm
1: absolutely delighted to have the conversation with you today about your book all crazy now we're going to get into what it is all about and how crazy is it i believe that it's your 17th book. You've done 16 to date. So let's briefly talk about your backstory.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I'm a a longtime sports journalist, if you like. I've uh, been working for the last 25 years now in uh, public relations, head of public relations for the NFL, the American football folks, uh, head of publicity for them in, in Europe, but I've been, Writing books, sort of regularly, almost one a year now for the last twenty years. Um, and I think if anyone looks at the the books that I've written, you can you can definitely see a recurring theme. Um, they're all pretty much um, either historical or biographies, stories of of people, um, stories of particular teams and events. And all largely from the sort of era that I grew up in, sort of 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, so there's a, a definite theme there. I've been, you know, very fortunate that I've been able to write about some of my heroes, and and have certainly interviewed many of of my heroes. Um, mostly football books, a, a few cricket, um, a rugby book about the Wales team in the 1970s. And I've been lucky, as I say, to interview many of my heroes, you know, as you have in the stuff that you're doing. And, you know, the, the great thing is that almost to a man, it, it's it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to, to guys from that era. They love to talk about um, the old times. They're very generous with, the, with their time. And um, it's, you know, it's that's the real joy of it, really. You know, apart from just the writing is actually sort of sitting and, and talking to the guys. Ultimately, who is your hero? Do You know, my, my favourite all time favourite footballer is, is not anyone who, who even won a single England cap, but it's John Samuels, who really? uh, was um, Arsenal midfielder. I'm, I'm an Arsenal fan um, sort of from the late 60s. Um, he was one of the first players I, I remember um for various silly reasons there's the kind of reasons that stick out when you're a seven-year-old you know his hairstyle was a little bit different to the rest of the team is the first time i'd ever seen a john spelt without an h right. um i loved what, just the way he played he's scored what is still the my favorite goal that i've seen live in a stadium with a, a sort of a 40 yarder against Manchester united in late 69 um and Funnily enough, when I kind of wrote my first football book, um, which was a book about the 1971 Arsenal double team, um, John was the first player I went to interview. And you know, like everybody would would know who's ever kind of met their heroes, it's always a bit nerve wracking. And you think, oh, is he actually going to be a nice guy? And he was the nicest man ever. We, you know, we sit and sh- sat and chatted for two hours. Um, and you know his wife made us lunch, and you know he was my hero all over again so um so John Stammels would probably be my sort of favorite all time footballer, but you know i am lucky that i've've Alan Ball was another one i've written about him in cricket. it was people like Tony Gregg who i've written about um rugby my all time hero, even though I'm not welsh was was Gareth Edwards, and you know when I spoke to him when I was doing my book about the Welsh rugby team such a gentleman I mean I was asking him questions that he'd probably been asked a thousand times during his life but he was one of those people who, who makes you feel like you're asking the questions for the first time and, and he's very thoughtful and, and generous in his answers so um you know stuff like that is is what makes writing books like this you know a real pleasure and how long does it take you to write the book you did
1: say that it take, you know you try and do one every year that is prolific by anybody's yeah. imagination.
0: I don't set out necessarily to do one a year, but I'm I'm quite obsessive in my nature, if you like. So uh, once I get cracked into something, I, I kind of do it regularly. I mean, I, I'm lucky that I'm not someone who needs to find a darkened room and, and hide themselves away to write. I can happily sit in the living room with laptop on my lap. Mrs. will be watching television. I'm sort of doing writing Um so I'm able to do it in a way that, that that is, you know, reasonably sociable. I don't have to kind of shut myself away. Um, my kids are all grown up. So I've got no sort of school runs or, or football lessons or ballet classes to take any kids to. So, um, you know, my time outside of my day job is pretty much my own. So... And I always, I always get to the end of one. I think, right, I'll, I'll have a bit of a break here. But I've always got three or four ideas on the go already for the next one, and I just always want to crack straight into them. So I don't certainly don't set myself a target of a book a year, but it, it tends to work out that it's roughly between sort of twelve and eighteen months um, for for each book. The one that we're going to talk about, all crazy now, was probably a little bit longer than that because I'd written little bits of it on and off for maybe. Ten years with a with view to eventually wanting to write this sort of what I hoped was an all encompassing book about the 1970s and then kind of gone off and done other things. So even though it probably was a, a 12, 18 month intensive period to kind of get it done, I had already have, had a little bit done in advance.
1: And I'm guessing with some of the players that you've referenced, you've you've got a lot of stuff. On the back burner that you can bring and put into the new book. All crazy now. The title's different. It's spelt like the way that Slade wrote the uh, the title to "Mama, We're All Crazy Now." How did absolutely. you? Yeah. How did you come about that title? Were you a Slade fan, and, and did it uh, come uh, from that?
0: Absolutely, uh, a massive Slade fan. Um, yeah, yeah, one of the sort of first bands I remember. I think I think actually the first album i ever bought was was Slade uh in 1972 or something or it might have been ziggy was one of those two at that yeah. time um but yeah i mean i think one of the things i wanted to do throughout the book was just kind of give a, a feeling of the time and, and the, the sort of the culture the pop culture of the time mm. if you like because i think it's it kind of helps sort of bring books like this to life um, and so I was, I was thinking of a title. I wanted it to be something that was very resonant of the 1970s. All crazy now that seems to kind of in, capture it because, you know, it was a time when things were a little bit more, it was a little bit more of the Wild West, if you like, than it is is now. You know, people look at football now and it can be, sort of quite sterile, if you like, in yeah. some ways, and very organized. and and, and But the, the 70s was still an era where it was a little bit more anything goes. So All Crazy Now kind of captured that a little bit. And, and to, again, to kind of give the sense of the time, I wanted to, you know, I, I used the, the Slade spelling of it. So um, hopefully it works. And I think, you know, people, certainly people of our generation would, would look at the book and, and, and understand straight away, you know, what, what the relevance of it is. As you would see with a
1: house you know, the book, the cover, it it brings you in, doesn't it? It would have what people would say, it's got doorstep appeal. The book cover has got book appeal. Another great title for it, and I don't know if you was thinking of titling it, this was uh, Saturday Night's all right for Fighting, because the 70s, you're right, it was like the Wild West, and there was almost as many fights on the pitch as what there was off the pitch, wasn't there?
0: Yeah, 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 I mean, that is actually one of the chapter titles, the the title of of the chapter that deals with um the hooliganism that was you know was a, was a, a big part of 1970s football um yes yeah, so i've used that that there but uh yeah the, i'm very pleased with with the cover of it and uh, to the extent where when i when i saw it i got the designer to actually send me um um, a copy of it that I could then send on to uh, one of these places that converts stuff into big canvas posters. So I've now got a big poster of it, sort of sitting above my stairwell because it's uh, it is a, a sort of very much a, a sort of 1970s style po- uh, cover. So it makes a nice sort of 1970s style poster. So yeah, I've been very pleased with it. And and the, and the cover shows um, Kevin Keegan and Billy Bremner in their sort of famous fight in the in the Charity Shield, which which I wanted on the cover for a few reasons, partly because um, it's just a great photo and it features two of the the, the sort of most iconic figures of, of the 70s and also i explained in the introduction to the book that that, that game is kind of marks a dividing line in in the, in the decade really it's kind of the, the crossover from the early 70s where that was all sort of very much dominated by Leeds, and then to, you know leading into the second part which was you know much more about liverpool so for various reasons, I wanted that, that that picture on the cover and uh, I think the designers done a fantastic job.
1: And also, if my memory serves me right, wasn't that 1974 Charity Shield the first one that involved the league champions and the FA Cup winners?
0: It wasn't the first, but it, it was right. the return to that. What had yeah. happened, it, it had been that for many years and then um, when Arsenal did the double in 71, that kind of... Through a a bit of a spanner in the works, and and Arsenal chose to play a sort of challenge series against Benfica rather than taking part in the charity shield. They ended up that year having Liverpool, who'd been the FA Cup runners up, against Leicester, who'd been the second division champions. And for two or three, I think for three seasons, it was always that sort of a weird combination. It was like the League Cup winners against the, the second division champions or something like that and then in 74 the FA said right we want to bring this back to what it was supposed to be so that they shifted the game to Wembley the first time being played at Wembley they went to the league champions Leeds and the FA Cup holders Liverpool um, threw a load of money at them and said look you know we want we want the two top teams back in the game again and from then on it's been you know the top two at Wembley all the way through till current day have you got any year that you would call your your favorite year of the 70s? Um, I think from a storytelling point of view it's probably the 1971-72 season um, for a few reasons one it was still one of the most exciting and closest championship races i mean anyone anyway, if you look at the if you look at the league table for the end of the year um, one point separating the top four teams. Yeah. Um, it wasn't decided till after the FA Cup final. I mean, the, the, the last Saturday of the, fin- of, of the season finished with Manchester City on top by one point. But ironically, they were the only one of the top four teams for whom it was mathematically impossible for them to win it. Yeah. Because of the games that were still to be played, Manchester City was certainly going to get overtaken. And then Leeds won the FA Cup. Could have beaten Wolves to win the league two days later, failed, lost the game. It then meant Liverpool would, would win it if they won at Arsenal. They only drew and it meant Derby, who were by that time sitting on a beach in Mallorca, were the champions. So it was a compelling title race between four of the most iconic managers of the time. Brian Clough, Don Revy, um, Malcolm Allison and Bill Shankley. There was an awful lot going on around that season in terms of you know big transfers that did and didn't happen. Um, there was a clamp down by the FA on trying to get rid of some of the foul play that was creeping into the game. At the, at the start of the season there was what became known as the ref's revolution where they were kind of booking players left, right and centre. And that whole... Battle for the soul of the game, if you like, that, that sort of whole argument about whether the game was becoming too physical was a big part of the, the early 70s narrative around English football. And so that season sort of captured a lot of those kind of elements. Um, and so that would probably be, be one of my favourites. The other one, which isn't quite in the 70s, but I have included it in the book as my starting point of the 70s, would probably be the 68-69 season, because I think that was the first one I remember the whole of the season and I, and I think everybody, everybody probably still remembers you know, the first season that they followed from start to finish. Everybody remembers their first World Cup and their first FA Cup final. So the 68-69 season also for me was probably the one where I kind of say, right, this was my first year as a real football fan. So um, so those those would be a couple that, that, that stand out. But, um, you know, I, I could make an argument. I could sit here all night making an argument for any one of the seasons because, you know, I love them all
1: absolutely who were the standout players of the 70s who were the players for the the people that the kids of today shall we say that that when they look at the 1970s it was 50 years ago plus yeah. now and it's like you know Granddad's favourite player was X, Y, and Z, and we had the Mavericks. Who are there any players in particular that that keep cropping up in this story about, in my opinion, those golden days, those halcyon days of the golden decade, which was the seventies era. My absolute love in football was the seventies.
0: Yeah, and I think you, you kind of reference them probably there. that that, that group that became known as the Mavericks. Um, They are probably, they're such a big part of of the story, certainly in the first half of the decade. And as I I just mentioned, that one of the sort of the themes that, that is recurring in the early 70s. And if you look at old magazines and newspapers, there was constantly this argument about, is the game becoming too cynical? Is it becoming too much about, you know, win at all costs? Are teams sort of playing um, to assist them much more than is good for the game and the individual is going out of it. And for that reason, there was you know this group of players who, who didn't conform, um, who kind of stood out because they were so different to what was going on around them. So it was the likes of... Alan Hudson, Frank Worthington, Charlie George, Rodney Marsh, Stan Bowles—all—all all the 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 ones that are obvious names to to people who kind of lived through the 70s—and and, you know their story is is so fascinating that you know you look at a series of England managers who who kind of overlooked them, and you know I make a point in in, in my book that you know that group that I just mentioned. Um, and, you know, throwing Peter Rosgood in that as well. You know, combined, they won fewer England caps than I think Glenn Johnson is the example I've given in the book. You know, nothing against Glenn Johnson. Perfectly good, adequate, you know, good right back. But you know, it seems um, crazy to a lot of people that, that this group of talented players only won a very limited number of England caps because, you know, Ramsey and then Revy they just weren't the kind of players that that sort of fitted into their vision of an England team and so there was this constant discussion in the media in the first half of the 70s about where those players fitted in and the fact that they didn't fit in a lot of the time was was sort of something that a lot of people saw as being you know obviously a, a bad development in the in the game and uh, you know not good for the way that the game was heading and and it was something that was used as an argument for why crowds were going down in the 70s fewer goals were being scored um so there's obviously there's players like that but then within the, the systems there were some other fantastic players i mean i mean i think billy bremner is a very underrated player i think people remember him for, you know, the kind of picture that is on the on the cover of the book, you know, getting into a fight, and they remember the sort of cynicism of the Leeds team. But Bremner was a terrific player. I mean, again, if you look at old Leeds films, the number of times he's making key contributions and scoring important goals, um, such a terrific player. And then you have someone who kind of was almost a poster boy for the 70s, Kevin Keegan, um, probably very few players, other than him, have got as much out of you know. I don't want to say limited talent, but he certainly didn't have the natural skills that, that the Hudson or a Worthington had. But the way he kind of worked to make himself into the icon he was and the successful player he was, as I say, it almost kind of made him a poster boy for that new sort of ethos of football where it was all about hard work and and running yourself into the ground and and you know never giving up. Um, so, and then you move on to the late part of the decade. Kenny Dalglish takes over at Liverpool. What a terrific player he was! And one of my favourite players, John Robertson, outside left at, at Nottingham Forest. Very rare to see a player who was so on, so much on the periphery of, of the field from a geographical point of view. You know, never wandered in off the left wing, but basically being such a focal point of a team's attack. And you know, you again, you watch Forest games the late 70s and so much goes through him which is kind of unusual for a player who was sort of stuck out on the wing so you know there's a lot of those players and and you know hopefully I've told a lot of their stories um throughout the book um and uh, and you know I've also I kind of talk a lot about someone who could have been one of the mavericks of, of the of the 70s Peter Knowles at Wolves who kind of gave it up just as the 70s were about to start to go and be home Jehovah's Witness, so you know I've included his story in there as well because I think that's very interesting, um, and it's very interesting to ponder what might have happened had he gone on and and fulfilled his career and, and how big a star he could have been in the 1970s. God's
1: footballer, I've done that's an interview. Yeah, i done an interview with uh, with Kenny a bit, and Kenny was saying he couldn't believe it, what Knowles had just said. In the dressing room, I don't you swearing, I don't you doing this, I don't you doing that, and I'm packing it in. And they're like, No, are you having a laugh? And they Uh honestly, and Wolves as a football club kept his registration alive for something like ten seasons because they were all convinced that Knowlesy was going to walk back in there, pick up his boots, and carry on playing for Wolverhampton Wanderers. But it never.
0: No, that's right, and and you know whatever you think of the decision he made, whether it was, you know it's right or wrong, or whether you agree with his beliefs or not, you have to admire the 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 commitment to that 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 decision. You know, yeah. to walk away like that at, at the peak of his career, and to be determined that he was never going to come back and and go through with it. Fantastic. You know, speaks fantastically for his commitment, but you know, a real a real loss to uh, to English football and you know to Wolves fans particularly.
1: Absolutely, Derek Dugan, another player in the seventies, very much instrumental in a lot of things that went on in the seventies with regarding the PFA and also advertising. Didn't Derek bring the first advertising Kettering tyres to football, but they got banned originally. That's
0: right. That's right, yeah. And I, and I wrote a book about Derek Dugan, you know, for, for a lot of those reasons, you know, I was instrumentally in such a lot that went on in, in football in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. in his, his role as chairman of the PFA. And then, as you say, when he went to Kettering Town as as, as manager and chief executive, um, you know, the, the, the players the players told me they sort of, they had no idea it was going to happen. They just turned up in the, in the dressing room for I think it was an FA trophy game one night and suddenly saw these these. Um, these shirts on hooks with Kettering tyres on them. And, you know, they run out and, and wore them. And next thing they know, you know, Dugan's being threatened with being fined by the FA and, you know, the, all all sorts of other threats being made. So his idea then was to sort of get round it by changing it to Kettering T, um, which, you know, he said, well, it's, you know, it stands for Kettering Town, obviously, not just Kettering tyres, but they didn't let him get away with that either. Um, and then a couple of years later, um, they were you know the fa were were sort of allowing teams to to wear sponsors on their shirts anyway um but the, the, the story of sponsorship in in the 1970s is interesting and one that i sort of cover in, in the new book um i think the vision of alan hardacre who was sort of head of the football league at the early 70s was that it would become a much bigger part of football much more quickly than it did so In 1970, we saw the introduction of the Watney Cup, which was a a pre-season tournament for English teams. Then there was the Texaco Cup, which was a kind of a a sub-European tournament, if you like, for the best teams in England, Scotland and Ireland that hadn't qualified for Europe. And those tournaments did did pretty well for for a few years and and were, I guess, sort of trailblazers, if you like, in in terms of sponsorship. And again, at the time, there was a lot of angst going on um, and people worried that sponsorship was going to fundamentally change the nature of the sport. And, you know, you have quotes from people like Bobby Charlton saying, well, you know, it's fair enough having a competition named after whatever. But, you know, don't expect me to run out on a on a football field with a with a beer company all over my shirt. Um, but, you know, obviously that is that's the reality we, we now live in. Um, and I think Alan Hardacre saw that coming a lot of years before it actually sort of really came to full fruition and and by the mid 70s those tournaments had ended and hardacre was sort of lamenting the fact that they had gone and and was was sort of worried that a lot of clubs were missing out on what at that time would have been a lot of vital income so yeah the sort the story of sponsorship is 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 again a, a big part of the the development of the sport in the 70s and i think one of the reasons why for me the 70s is such an interesting decade because a lot of what we see and take for granted in football now had its roots in that time.
1: Jimmy Hill, another pioneer. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, was uh, head of the PFA when uh, yep. when when the maximum wage was 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 abolished in in 61. Yeah. Um, and you know throughout the 70s, I mean, he, he was. The voice of authority. I mean, and, and if you look back at now and watch clips of Jimmy Hill, or you listen to him on commentary, and you compare the sort of opinions and, and the kind of knowledge he had of the game, the way he analysed the game, you compare it to you know the likes of Gary Neville and whoever now. It seems so basic and and not particularly thoughtful, um, and you know, almost naive. But at the time, you know Jimmy Hill carried an awful lot of weight in terms of his opinions he was you know the the first started the the decade as as the face of analysis on itv became the face of match of the day in about 73 had newspaper and magazine columns um you know was chief executive at coventry city was hugely influential um Mm. and you know if jimmy hill said something you know people did sit up and listen um so yeah another another major character uh, of that time
1: and the king of the free kick must have been Willie Carr of the 70s.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a shame that, that that you can't really bring that goal to life in, in a book. But, you know, obviously yeah. do talk about it. I mean, you know, people would have seen it on YouTube. that w- Willie Carr stands there against Everton um, at Highfield Road, Coventry. With the ball between his heels, flicks his heels up towards his backside and the ball pops up in the air. Ernie Hunt ball is it in. I mean, what is what is remarkable about that goal is is the good fortune that it happened the good first of all, the good fortune that the ball went in the net, because I'm sure that you know that if they tried it twenty times in practice, they probably only got it in the net once. And the good fortune that it happened in front of the T V cameras, because, you know, as, as people will remember from, from those days. You had a couple of games on Match of the Day. You had, you know, a few regional games on ITV. You might get a news camera at one or two games. So there were an awful lot of First Division games that never had cameras there. And and, and the chance, the chances were, were greater that that would have happened and it would have been lost for all time because, you know, very few people would have seen it. So it's real fortunate. Um, a turn of events that it happened to be a night when the match of the day cameras were there. and Maybe that's why they saved it for the cameras. Maybe they'd been waiting for a game when they knew the cameras were going to be there to do it. Um, but certainly was uh, an yeah, a, a incredible goal and, and one that ended with the the rules having to be changed so that you know, you're no longer able to do that, that the ball had to kind of pass through a complete sort of revolution before it, it was deemed to have been a legal free kick. So, uh Shame about that, but yeah, so it made it made sure sure it was a one-off and would never be repeated. The
1: infamous donkey kick, but Willie done another free kick that probably, when you look at football in the seventies, changed or shaped the history of European football for Brian Clough, because when Wolverhampton played Bolton Wanderers. While uh, while Forest were in the air, Willie Carr played a ball to Kenny Hibbit, and the ball nestled just inside Bolton Wanderers' goal, which right. which promoted Nottingham Forest, huh. and then the season after went on to win the league and then win the European Cup back to back, which for me is still the greatest feat of any English team, surely.
0: Oh, I would agree with that, yeah, and, and it is remarkable those fine margins I mean you know and that in a sense what is what makes i mean forrest's story is remarkable, but it wasn 't like they stormed through the second division, won it by a mile, and everyone was thinking, gosh this, this team could do really well in the first division, as you say, they kind of scraped to promotion mm-hmm. thanks to someone else's efforts ultimately on the on the on the final night of the season, so no one had an inkling at all what was coming, um, and even you know they went up to, on the first day of the season and won at Everton. People were saying, "Well, you know, we've seen teams do this before. A newly te- newly promoted team comes up, and and they and they win a win their first game, and but they're soon going to fizzle out." Um, and I remember being as an Arsenal fan, I remember being at what would have been, I think their fourth game of the season. They'd won all three games going in, and then they came to Arsenal. And Arsenal walloped them. You know, it was two or three nil and Arsenal completely outplayed them. Um, and we thought, right, that's the end of it. But then Brian Clough, you know, the genius manager that he was, went out and signed Peter Shilton. And he realised that this is this is what we're lacking. We need Peter Shilton. We need someone in goal who's going to, you know, give us that solid base. Um, signed Shilton and, you know, they just went off on a run. And, and it is, I agree with you. I mean, as, as, Fantastic, as Leicester's achievement was a few years ago to win the Premier League, and as unexpected that w- as that was in this day and age, I think the fact that Forest sustained it over a couple of years, went on and won two European Cups, um, you know, were you know rivals to to the great Liverpool team as being the best team in the country for two or three years, is an astonishing uh, achievement. And it it becomes almost even more astonishing when you look at the fact that Clough had already done pretty much the same at another provincial team, if you like, in Derby County earlier in the decade. had taken them up, um, got them into the first division, won the first division, and but for some dodgy refereeing against Juventus in the European Cup semi-final, could have reached the final of the European Cup. So, you know, he was very close to doing it twice. Um, And... You know whether or not you think Brian Clough was the greatest manager of the period or ever, I don't think you can argue too much that his achievement of taking two small teams like Derby, Nottingham Forest, to the heights he did is is an achievement that is pretty unrivaled.
1: I think Brian, in his own words, says, "I might not have been the top manager, but I was in the top one."
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Clough is is inevitably a recurring character in the book. And I, and I say at the end that in some ways he was probably the most dominant individual character in the UK of the decade. I mean, he was everywhere. I think, you know, people probably uh, who, who, who weren't around will, don't necessarily appreciate how ubiquitous a football manager could be. You know, he was, he was everywhere in the media because he you know, he, he spoke louder and more and, and had um, you know, stronger opinions than everyone else. He was being interviewed on Parkinson on a Saturday night and the David Frost show, and he was being impersonated by Mike Yarwood on sort of Saturday night primetime TV. And it, it meant you know, school kids like me were kind of all doing our own Brian Clough impersonations in the playground you know, on on the Monday morning. Um, and he really was. He, he he went beyond just football. He became one of the most dominant personalities in in the whole of the country for for that period and also
1: the great Muhammad Ali cloth I've had enough exactly (laughs) he said what are you gonna do? I want to fight him. Yeah, <laughs> but that yeah. was Clough. I mean, he he just I think epitomised everything that you'd want from a manager. And and during that decade, as you say, he started there at Derby, and he he, he went to uh, to Leeds United, well, Forest, Leeds United, Brighton, over, Albion. he had a few clubs in that decade. And and going in at Leeds United, only lasting 44 days, it was quite, quite incredible because Cloughy. Through the media, probably had slagged Leeds United off more than anybody else, and famously on his first day told him to stick all the medals in a
0: in dustbin because you've cheated. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and again, you yeah, know, that coming back to what we were talking about earlier and, yeah. and the sort of the, the battle for football's soul, if you like, uh, in the early 70s, you know, the, the fact that Leeds had been so successful with um, a team that had, had kind of kicked and scrapped their way. Up the up the table, if you like, you know, could could be very cynical, even though they were a magnificently skillful team. And when when Revy let them off the, off the leash, they could play some absolutely wonderful football. They were, were never going to get rid of that reputation as being, you know, a hard cynical team. Um, you know, epitomised probably by Johnny Giles, who was one of the most skillful players. In in the world, but was also wasn't afraid to kind of leave his boot in there and, and go over the top a bit, which was you know typical of Leeds. And and Brian Clough's voice was probably one of the loudest of the early 70s period in in kind of criticising them and saying that they were bad for football. I mean that his his downfall, his demise ultimately at Derby County, was triggered by the fact that he got himself a, a big fine for writing a piece in one of the newspapers where he said that the FA had, had missed a great opportunity to clean up the game when they only fined or gave Leeds a suspended fine for um, bad behaviour on the pitch. He said, you know, they, they should have relegated them and made a, an example of them. And, you know, you know Clough was probably...
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: we saying that partly in tongue-in-cheek. Um, it got him a fine, and it meant that he fell out with his chairman at Derby, Sam Longson. Um, you know, Sam Longson had, was growing weary of the fact that he couldn't control Clough anymore, and that was really the beginning of the end for Clough at Derby, and, and ultimately led to him being the, the absolutely the most unlikely character to have turned up as as being manager of that Leeds team. I mean, if if you if you picked one person a year earlier and said right, who do you think will be manager of Leeds United in a year's time when Don Don Revie takes over England? I think Brian Clough would have been bottom of the list. There was no way you could ever see Clough doing that. But that I guess was typical of him that it, it was that sort of challenge that I guess he could he felt he couldn't resist. And when he was asked, you know, how can you how can you do things um, better than than Don Revy? You know, it was that you know Don's won the league, but I think we can do it in more style. I want so I want to give Leeds fans that Leeds fans a team to be proud of. Um, so and only probably Clough would have had the arrogance to think that he could go in and do that. Um, but as you say, famously went very wrong very quickly. Arrogance or complete
1: self belief. To sides or two different sides of the same coin. I remember interviewing Alan Clark and, and Clark he said to me, Sniffer, Cluffy was the right man, but just at the wrong time. And the lead yeah. players had gone they the year before, Don Reeve had a dream that he wanted the team to go unbeaten all year. Mm. And what they did, they turned up a week earlier than usual to start their pre season training and did when Brian Clough was the manager. Clough he was still on holiday in Spain with the family. And Alan yeah. Clark said to me, When Brian Clough met us for the first time, he said he was a very, very nervous man. Mm. It was quite extraordinary the way that it A, he took the job, B, the way it went and ultimately ended. And, and Cloughy did at the end say, you know, look, like you are a great team, and Ali Barley. Some of the things that I said, I think, quite mean, but it was a little bit too late, and the damage had already been done.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that whole episode that was sort of um, captured famously in the film *The Damned United*. But mm. you know, there's a lot of things about *The Damned United* that people not necessarily, um, you know, say is 100% true. But I don't think there's any dispute that that the gist of that first conversation has been captured perfectly. And as you said earlier about throwing the the medals in the the bin, that was probably Clough's way of, of hiding his own insecurity of going in there with all these players Mm -hmm. and, and thinking I've got to do something um, to kind of make my mark. And, and had he thought about it, I'm sure he would have gone about it in a different way. There's an interesting comment from Trevor Cherry that I quote in the book saying that things could also have been very different had Jimmy Armfield been the one that came over to come came in to take over immediately from Don Revy. And then Clough had maybe come in a year yep. or two later. Yep. So, so he hadn't been immediately following Revy, there'd been a sort of bit of a different period, and then Clough had come in. That could have could have made the story you know much different to what it turned out to be. Obviously we'll never know.
1: Hundred percent. Another story of the seventies, Stan Bowles and Don Shanks and the old Bailey.
0: Uh, you, you, you tell that one yeah. you're going to you have to remind me about well, that
1: one they, they, there was a few things there, there was certainly when the boys turned up at a McDonald's they they were going from the training ground to uh, to I think it was Acne Dogs and they'd crossed London and they'd parked uh, outside this building um, a week later they'd done exactly the same and I believe it was in Carlisle Dave's van, transit mm. van well the police had, were looking for this number plate that's in this number plate and Don Shanks had parked it up. Stan had gone. I don't. I'm not so sure whether it was McDonald's or whether it was Wimpy's. McDonald's might not have been over in the UK in them times. But Stan's come back with the food, and Shanks has got the arms up the back from the uh, the, the, the police that have come out the building. And Stan's looked, at, what the hell's going on here? And I think as a direct result of that, they found themselves in the old Bailey. They also found themselves in trouble in uh, in Belgium when uh, Don Shanks and and uh, Stan Bowles had had a bit of fiver about Don would be able to get a brandy while all the bars are closed. And that, that is a fantastic story that Don yeah. tells so well. And also, Stan Bowles, we can't not talk about the FA Cup and Stan Bowles, that game at Roker Park after they'd not long won the FA Cup.
0: Yeah, you, 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 your 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 Stan Bowles knowledge is greater than mine. You're going to remind the listeners about that. Well, one it, as well. It,
1: again, it was on news at ten, wasn't it? Stan, Stan, Stan liked a bit. I mean, Odi'll tell you. Um, Stan liked a bit. Shank's'll tell you. Stan liked a bit. Don liked a bit as well. All them boys liked a bit. Yeah. Well, the FA Cup was was on show at uh, Roker Park and Stan had had a bet with Don Shanks that he could knock the FA Cup oh, off Oh, yes, yes,
0: yes, yes, so, <laughs> that one, yeah, yeah. So
1: the Sunderland yeah. fans wasn't too enamoured when I think Stan made contact and the FA Cup uh, bit yeah. the dust. But, uh, yeah. The, the
0: interesting thing about, about, about stories like that and, and, the, and the kind of personalities of people like Bowles and, yeah. and Frank Worthington, who we were talking about earlier, you know, managers would love them to have been, you know, more in line and, and mm-hmm. not sort of quite as outrageous in their behavior but you know there's always that question if you if you've taken away that element of them did that did that arrogance that meant frank worthington could you know go around bedding however many women in a, in a week and you know write an autobiography that called one hump or two yeah. if you take it that you the arrogance that, that made him do that was that the same arrogance that made him such a great player on the field and, and enabled him to score that wonderful goal that, that you know people might have seen on YouTube of, of him playing for Bolton against Ipswich in later in the decade? Or Stan Bowles and his, his, his love of life and you know those stories that you just related and his love of a bet. If you took that out of him, would it also have taken some of the essence of the way he played the game as well? So with a lot of those people and I think the it always seems to me that the managers who were most successful in managing those players were the ones who just accepted that that was the way they were. You kind of dealt with it, you put up with it, you got the best out of them. If you tried to take too much of that out of their out of their life, you were going to take important elements out of their game. Um, and you know, to me, that's you know, I think you you just have to. Accept that that's what those players were, and that's part of what made them the, the great personalities on the field and the great players that they were. 100%. I said
1: well, one of the first times that me um, and Oddie done a, a podcast again, and I said, The thing is with you guys, Al, your brains were wired up different to ours. You saw things and done things on a football pitch that the normal fan, the normal player wouldn't even think about, and you did it. So you were just exceptional on the pitch. You were mm-hmm. like that off the pitch. Why would we think that you come back yeah. off the pitch and just be a normal Joe? You guys were never going to be normal Joes. You were just Mavericks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That That's kind of what made them stand out. And yeah, what what Alan Hudson, again, was one of my favourite players of the period. And the frustrating thing about Alan Hudson is you can't talk about Alan Hudson's career without thinking... All of all the what ifs, you know, that that ankle injury he got just before the 1970 yep. FA Cup final that, you know, took him out of not only that game, certainly took him out of being a possible outside choice for the 1970 World Cup squad and really meant that he was never quite the same player again. And, um, you know, as you know, you know, when he went when he went to Stoke, Tony Waddington always used to water the pitch for him. So that it was it was a, bit, a little bit softer and wasn't too hard on his ankles. Um, and then you know what if Don Revy had actually kept him in the England team after he played those two brilliant games mm. at the start of his uh, you know of his England career and but then never picked him again um, and you know, uh, Peter Osgood I mean of uh, uh, such a great player he was but again he was someone who'd suffered a serious injury early in his career broken leg and people always said that he you know as good as Osgood was mm. he could have been even better if he hadn't had that that injury um, so in any story like this there's always a lot of those what ifs and it's kind of it, it's partly fun and it's partly frustrating to to kind of ponder on those things um i was a, as i said arsenal fan i mean i always say that when people ask me the best player i've seen at arsenal i always say for a three or four month period at the end of the 77 78 season when hudson came back into the arsenal team was playing with brady and ricks he was, I've never seen anyone play better in an Arsenal shirt for a short period of time than, than Hudson did then. Um, but again, he you know, was suffering from long-term injuries and you know, had that brief period, but then you know, couldn't sustain it. So, yeah, his story, along with the likes of bowls and all those, it tends to be one of frustration more than, more than achievement. And again, at Arsenal, Uddy
1: didn't have a, a medical. He, he got an injury and Terry Neal didn't believe that he'd, he'd got an injury. That was half the battle Hudson signed for Arsenal when he wasn't fit. They then yeah. had the pre-season tour of Singapore and Australia and famously Super Mac and Allen got sent back home. But Geordie was in that trio as well. Uh, And in fact, they were around the swimming baths and Jock Steen said, I can't help but notice, boys, but you don't really get on with your manager, do you? And that was a lot of the problems. Terry Neal, when Don Howe come in, it changed a little bit, but it was a little bit too late for Al. And then, you know, we went um, after the 78 uh, FA Cup final, they had a stewards inquiry and Hudson pretty much blamed Terry Neal and Terry Neal jumped over and uh, tried to throttle him and, and, and it the relationship really didn't improve and, and probably the worst part of the relationship was on a, a flight to, I think they were on the way to Sydney, when they were going up to the bar and having a couple of drinks. And Terry Neal had already seen uh, Oddie go up with Malcolm once, so he went up and says, oh you you've been up here once, he was having a beer with, um, with Jock Steen and he says, look, it's been a long time since I've had a word and talked to a proper manager, so if you don't mind. <laughs> and that didn't go down very well with Terry Neal as well. So there was a lot of mitigating things with Terry Neal and Alan Hudson. But you're right, what an absolute player. Uh, Superstars, another fantastic uh, series in the 70s. As with the Three yeah. Degrees, we had a lot of black players come into the game, with you know, big run at, at West Bromwich Albion. And the Home Internationals was a, a staple for every football fan, especially. England versus Scotland. I remember saying to my dad as a kid, Dad, is this at Amden or Wembley? It's at Wembley, sort Yeah.
0: Blimey. Yeah. Yeah. No, the home internationals, I mean, again, coming back to the, talking about 68, 69 earlier, 68, 69 was the first year they moved the home internationals to one week at the end of the season and every game was on TV. Yeah. Now, you know, you talk to people who, who only know the modern era of, of TV when you've got you know, four or five games on pretty much every day that you can watch from all over the world. I think people don't understand how starved we were of live football. And that whole whole thrill of just watching a game, knowing it was actually taking place at that moment, and you were watching a game without knowing what the result was going to be, was just so thrilling. And then so suddenly you get... You know, you, you'd you get the, the FA Cup final live and you might get the European Cup final, but just suddenly for them to say, right, we've got a whole week of live football, you know, five or six games of home internationals, everyone going to be live, you know, a Saturday afternoon, then a Saturday evening, a couple of midweek games, and then England-Scotland on the final Saturday. It was, you know, it was like you'd died and gone to heaven if you were a young football fan. Um, so yeah, it was fantastically exciting for a while. You know that 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 whole ability to to see live games. Even uh, you know, again, I mention it in in the book the nineteen seventy one Anglo Italian Cup final, Bologna versus Blackpool. It, suddenly, it was live on grandstand on, on on a Saturday afternoon. Live football on a Saturday afternoon. This again was unheard of. So you know, millions sat there watching. The final of the Anglo-Italian Cup, which you know some people might remember as a tin pot tournament, but but you know it, it was live club football on on English television. So we all sat there and watched it. Um, you know, such such a, a different a different era. Um, but yeah, so many good storylines. You know, you mentioned the rise of the black players there, and, and obviously there's a, a whole chapter of, on that in the book. Um, so starting really at the beginning of the decade with with West Ham and guys like Clyde Best and A.D. Coker and and the Charles brothers, going through the middle of the decade where you know someone like Laurie Cunningham was coming through, um, and talking about the, the the development of of the black player and and the way they were perceived. By the media and on the terraces, um, always con- looked at as being a bit of a novelty, if you if you like, in in, in the first instance, um, which probably in some way protected them from some of the real sort of vitriol and hatred that was thrown at them later in the decade when more black players were coming through yeah. and were maybe perceived as more of a threat to some people on on some terraces. You know, when it was every Clyde Best was even though he, he did, you know, he talks in his autobiography about having received a threat that someone was going to throw acid in his face mm. to most football fans. Clyde best was this sort of, you know, quirky, lovable character. And yep. we all liked watching him play, yeah. but then you know, by the seventies, by, by the late seventies, when, you know, you had, had the three guys at West Brom, you had a lot of players elsewhere. There was, um, it, it was a feeling of things starting to turn nasty. And I, I was, I was on the North bank at Highbury. and, in, it would have been early 1978 when Bob Hazel of Wolves got sent off for hitting Graham Ricks late in a in an FA Cup game, and the 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 feeling of of hatred towards him as he kind of walked off in front of the north bank to to the towards the tunnel, yeah. Even as someone you know who was a teenager then and not particularly aware of these things, even I could sort of sense that, this just doesn't feel right, this just feels like it's gone beyond way beyond banter. It actually feels you know really nasty um so there's definitely the story of the black players' experience throughout the decade is another important um, episode in the book. Do you cover European? Football
1: as well, not the European Cups, because in those days we had the European Cup, the Cup Winners' Cup, the UEFA Cup, and there's some great books about that by Stephen Scragg. Certainly the uh, the UEFA Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup mm. that's out on Pitch Publishing, which I believe Pitch are publishing your book as well, Correct. aren't they? That's right, yeah.
0: yeah that's but right.
1: but you know the overseas players, the likes of Johan Cruyff, the greatest team never to win the World Cup for me. Well, there's three. Hungary, I was a bit too young though to appreciate them in 1954 in 74 Holland and then in 82 Brazil yeah. iconic sides but that that team that Holland that orange team the Cruyff turn in 76 we seen the Panenka. in fact when you look at football today everything started in the 70s
0: uh, well yeah yeah I, I, I'm not going to argue with that um But no, I don't, I don't, you know, the book is, is the subtitle of the book is English Football and Footballers in the 1970s. So I've tried to, I could have, I'd still be writing it, you know, in 10 years time if I tried (laughs) to take in everything. So, so European football is, is mentioned in the context of, you know, the English team's um, participation and and what they did. But, you know, the, the stories start to merge, if you like, at the end of the decade, and famously in sort of seventy eight, seventy nine, when um, suddenly we started getting an influx of overseas players yeah. into the English game. Started with Tottenham going to Argentina and signing Ozzy Ardiles and, and Ricky Villa, um, who just won the, the the World Cup with Argentina. But then there was a, a period of you know you looked at you look at the newspapers from that time, and every day the story was. Which big world or European player the next English team was was going to sign? Yeah. So, you know, Arsenal was supposedly after Rude Kroll and Johan Neeskens, and and then Johan Cruyff was was um, leaving Barcelona, and for a long time it looked like he might be coming to English football. He ended up going to the, the states in in instead, but then you had you know the the Arnold Muren coming into to Ipswich. You had the very unlikely, probably the most unlikely of all of of that period of Argentina's Alberto Tarantini going to Birmingham City, which always seems a bit bit of an odd one to me. Maybe not quite as odd as a few years later as Alan Simonson going to Charlton Athletic, but certainly up there. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's, I guess, a bit of a merging. And again, as you say, why? Well, you can say that everything started in the 70s. Certainly, that was the start of the, the major influx of overseas players. There'd been a few earlier on. But in 78, um, sort of driven by European law, if you like, mm. um, the Football League had to do away with... The sort of residence requirement that had originally been needed for someone to from overseas to play in English football, they were allowed to um, uh, now sort of start signing overseas players. So, big furore at the time um, about you know with you know guys coming over taking our jobs and whether it was going to affect the English team. And you know even though we were talking about the odd player here and there. Um, there was a big hue and cry about it. And, you know, whereas, you know, obviously today, the English players in the Premier League are in the minority. Um, So, so, yeah, very interesting time and... Certainly, the start of a new era when you you look at the players that came in at the end of the seventies.
1: And you also dispel a myth or two in your book as well, certainly about the horse of the year show. It didn't happen.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 such one of my bugbears. And and it's it's one of these things that has become accepted fact. You know, and and the players who played in in either the three games that were always affected? the 1969 League Cup final, Arsenal with Swindon, the 69 League League Cup final, Man City, uh, the 1970 League Cup final, Man City-West Brom, and most famously, the 1970 FA Cup final, Chelsea-Leeds. You always hear the players saying, "We oh, well, the pitch was terrible, because like, they held the Horse of the Year show the week before. Mm-hmm. Now, the Horse of the Year show must have been held about three times a year, if that was true. But I, I was determined to, 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 to check my facts on this. In fact, first of all, it was the Royal International Horse Show, not the Horse of the Year Show. And it was held at Wembley Stadium in the summer of 68 and 69. Um, but the, the pitch just never recovered. Uh, and I quote a few groundsmen who were involved at the time. are saying, you know, they, they put a load of grass down after the first time they'd held it. Um, they had heavy rain the roots of the grass never took. So when they held the, the horse show again a year later, it just instantly pulled it all up. And then there was no, then you, by that time you were getting into another new season, there was no time to do anything about it. And and it really is a, a you know, a, sh- a criminal shame almost of English football. If you look at the, the 1970 FA Cup final in particular, I mean, as soon as the ball is kicked and as soon as, the first few steps are taken. That sort of mud and sand that that covers the pitch has just got footprints, so like yeah. you know, someone walking on the sand on the beach. Um, and the, the fact that Chelsea and Leeds were able to produce such a great game is, is a testament to them. But you know, it's it's staggering, really. And and when you hear people comparing the, the players of today with the players you know that we've been talking about, you know, would Alan Hudson have been as good in his day, or even you know, you, defending was 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 nowhere near the level of skill that you get now you know stoppers were stoppers then and they just booted the ball anywhere but in general levels of skill are much higher today a because of the way the players train and b because of the the playing surface they they were playing on yeah. you know if 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 a peter simpson was playing now he'd be just as cultured as, as a defender as as you know Virgil van Dijk or whatever you know players players would adapt to the conditions that that they're faced with so it it is you know it it would have been great seeing some of the great players of that era playing on the kind of surfaces week in week out that the guys get to play on now
1: I had the good fortune of um of meeting up with uh, Frank Worthington a few times and I asked him that question and Frank just rolled his chair back and said son great players fit into any era of football and started singing it's now or never to me. <laughs> that was yeah, his favourite yeah. song. Yeah,
0: absolutely true. In any sport, in any era, you know, Gary Sobers would be a great cricketer yeah. now. Donald Bradman would be scoring a load of runs now because they they clearly had what was needed to get the most out of their game at that time and they would be doing exactly the same now with all the benefits that they would have of of modern training and and modern pitches and and whatever else. So yes, you can look at, you know, I'm a massive fan of 1970s football. It's my favourite era, but I'm not so blind that I can't watch some highlights from a 1970s game and realise that some of the skill is, is just nowhere near yeah. the level of the skill that players have today. But that's because the game is very different. And if those same players were transported forward 40, 50 years, they'd be playing the same kind of football that the guys are playing now.
1: Absolutely. And we didn't
0: have VAR in them days, but we still had ghost goals. We did, yeah. I mean, Alan Hudson scored against Hipswich, Ipswich. Yeah, yeah. Ball, hit the ball hit, hit the... Actually went outside the net and came out again. Yeah. I mean... Leeds United fans have never forgiven Ray Tinkler, um, oh. who, who who effectively, <laughs> they will argue, cost them two yep. league titles. Yep. I mean, he, he cost them um, what probably should have been a goal that was allowed in 71, which meant that they finished, um, you know, a point behind Arsenal. And then because of the riot that ensued, it meant that they had to play their first few away games, the first few home games of the next season on neutral ground didn't get maximum points from them and ended up losing that season's yep. league by one point as well. So, um, yeah, Leeds Leeds fans definitely have a, a would w- probably would have welcomed VAR in those days.
1: <laughs> absolutely. What's next on the uh, on the horizon? And just before you tell me, let's just briefly look at because when you were saying great players fit into any, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the book that you wrote, Natural, about the greatest goal scorer ever
0: Jimmy yeah, Greaves. Jimmy Greaves, yeah, yeah um yeah, again, huge amount of fun to write the book um, wrote it a couple of years ago now, um just felt that he was someone that you know no one had really written a book about him, he'd written a few himself, but i always I always think that there's there's room for a book by and about the same person. you get a very different Agreed. story, Jimmy was famously. A very modest, and B not very good at analysing what made him so good. Yeah. Um, and also, I find with you know autobiographies, they tend not to put things in sort of historical context necessarily. And I wanted to kind of give you know to give a nice rounded story of Jimmy. And I think his story is remarkable for for a few reasons. Partly for well, what a great player he was. You've got the sort of the, the dramatic storylines of, of missing the effort, the the, the World Cup final. And then you have that whole period of, of the 70s that where he, he disappears into this sort of well of alcoholism and then literally overnight decides that's it, I'm done with drinking, comes out of it and then reinvents himself as one of the most sort of popular TV personalities yeah. of the 1980s. Um, and I think the fact that he managed to do that without ever allowing... The alcoholism to be what defined him mm-hmm. um, is is a remarkable story. You know, I think people still think of Jimmy Greaves, the footballer, or Jimmy Greaves, the TV presenter, and, and then reformed alcoholic is kind of further down. Whereas yeah. some players who who have gone through the same thing, you know, for for good reasons sometimes. So, for example, Tony Adams, because he's made a career of of now of helping people that have been in his situation. That tends to be the thing you think of almost first with him before you think of the, the cups and the gaps. Yeah. Whereas Jimmy went a different direction. He decided, right, I'm done with it now. I'm going to talk about it. I'll write a book about it and that's it. I'm finished with it. I'm going to go on and, and go down a different path. Um, and I think you know he, he doesn't always necessarily get the credit for the, the, the career he had um in on on the field particularly when now you know everyone talks about goals in the premier league era and and kind of tend to forget about anything before that and he doesn't necessarily get the credit for for reinventing himself as a tv personality after everything he went through so the story which to me was was a fascinating one to tell um i was lucky that i got the cooperation of jimmy's family to write it and you know very sad that you know, I went and I met Jimmy, and and you know he's been in a very bad way since yeah. the stroke he had in in 2015. Um, um, so you know I was honoured to be able to sort of meet him and, and and write write a book about him that that's you know happily got well received, and um, uh you know, and I I was very pleased to write it.
1: Yeah, an absolute legend. Three hundred and fifty-seven English League goals at a rate of naught point six nine. It was like a rabid dog with a bone, wasn't it? inside that box, Jimmy Greaves, the greatest. Fantastic.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so again, some of his goals. If people have not seen it, you know, look look up Jimmy Greaves with Manchester United, nineteen sixty five. You know, some of the, those goals he scored, he just he had this way of running where if you just looked at him from the waist upwards while he was running, you'd not you'd think he was on on sort of casters or something and was yes. just kind of coming along so smoothly. There was no effort about anything he did. And again, one of the reasons why I called the book Natural because on the field he was a natural, on TV he was a natural. He famously didn't want to use cue or anything else. He kind of said what came to him, which sometimes got him in a bit of trouble. But, you know, doing things naturally was just the way he approached everything. So that seemed to me to be the ideal title for
1: it. Absolutely. And if people, if you want to look on YouTube, look at the elusive ghost with uh, Michael Doherty, when he talks about Jimmy, (laughs) and that just about sums Jimmy grooves up. So what's next on the, uh, on the horizon then, David,
0: what are you writing about now? I've just, um, actually literally today, as we speak, um, uh, have, uh, signed a contract with pitch again for a biography of Don Howe, which I'm working on, which, um, uh, been able to speak to many of the, the people that have, um, have worked with him. Um, and also we'll be working on another cricket story, a cricket book. Um, as, as I finish up Don Howe, that's one that I've kind of had on the, on the back burner for a while. And then after that, if depending on how this book about the seventies gets received, um, yeah, it's very tempting then to kind of go on and do the same job on the eighties. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see, but, um, Certainly going to have plenty going on.
1: Good man, can I wish you all the very best? It's out in February, I believe. Is it correct? The just after Valentine's Day, so yeah, February,
0: great, the 15th, yeah. February the fifteenth. February the fifteenth, which the people of my age will remember, it will be fifty years to the day that we went decimal. So um, instead of having to pay twenty pounds and whatever shillings for it, you know, it is you, you're buying it in decimal now. Um, so, yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of, of that. That's February the 15th. And um, so. and also the anniversary of a young
1: man from Birmingham, well, born in Plymouth, come to Birmingham, Wonderboy, age 16, scored four goals against uh, Bolton Wanderers. That was Birmingham's first home game after decimalisation.
0: Right. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah, Trevor Francis. And again, you know, a big part of, of the story, um, and and ironically, you know, massive star at the beginning of the decade, and then but yeah. needed to wait till the end of the decade to really have his moment in the sun with with you know Nottingham Forest and 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 England. So yeah, another another fascinating character from that period.
1: And again, the first million-pound player, how times change. And we could go on all night referencing players, a player that we haven't talked about much. Tony Curry was another one of those players. The 70s was just littered with great memories of fantastic football players. How can people purchase the book? We know it's out on the 15th. How And what's the easiest way?
0: 15th of of february um the the easiest way is always via the usual sort of online sites but you know if 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 shops are are open anytime soon then it'll be in all the the, you know the 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 big stores as well um so yeah should be should be easy to, to purchase hopefully and you know i'm hoping people enjoy it and i'm hoping that there will be enough in there for people of our generation who kind of remember it firsthand and kind of can relate some of their own experiences, but also people who have heard about the 70s and, and seen little bits of it and, you know, just, just read about people and and know some of their stories. Hopefully there will be um, stuff in there that will interest them and, and maybe understand where football, as we know it today, has come from.
1: Absolutely. And I know what my missus is going to get for Valentine's this year, mate. Excellent. you old
0: romantic
1: you <laughs> she's going to love it I've got my Stan Bowles calendar and my Alan Hudson calendar in the kitchen she's just walked in I'm going to give about 10 seconds and I'm going to wear the right row get that off my wall <laughs> very stain. mate can I thank you so much what a wonderful yeah, trip you. down memory lane all the best with, uh, with the book and we will talk again promoting your other books as well pal thanks a lot Gabby appreciate it and best wishes to everybody at Pitch as well thank you very much